Welcome to the Nordic Food Tech Podcast. On this show, we share the stories of how different actors up and down the value chain are working to take climate action through food. It's all about inspiring collaboration, discussing the good that is happening, the challenges we share, and realizing a common vision for our future food system. I'm your host, Annalisa Winther, and let's jump in. My guest today is Jacqueline Ingdahl, the head of Ika Bexa. Ika is one of the biggest grocery retailers in Sweden. They've been around for over 100 years and have over 1,000 stores all across Sweden. Recognizing the important role they play in the everyday life of Swedes, Ika is intent on creating a sustainable food system in Sweden that can last the next 100 years. To help achieve this, they launched Ikavexa, which is focused on growing the production and consumption of plant-based and locally produced foods. This episode is full of great examples of how an organization can partner across the value chain in surprising ways to make a difference. This is also the kind of stuff that I love to talk about, because outside of running this podcast, I have a consulting practice helping corporations find startups to partner or invest in that align with their future objectives. We call this kind of work venture scouting or corporate matchmaking, and listening to Jacqueline talk, I found it really cool to hear how a grocery retailer is taking on that kind of role. For most consumers, grocery stores are a primary interface for sourcing food, and therefore they play a critical role in influencing what gets made by producers and what gets bought by us, the consumers. It was fascinating to hear how Ika is working with everyone from farmers to startups to develop more sustainable food products, including their own label. And in today's episode, we do reference a few other podcast episodes. One is with Gustav, who runs the popular Swedish vegan food blog called Yautli Gut. Another is with Co-op Crowdfunding, which is a Danish supermarket, and how they've launched a crowdfunding platform for startups to help new products enter the market. And if you're generally interested in checking out more about Nordic grocery stores and how they're thinking about the future of food, I recommend the episode with K-Group out of Finland. You can find links to all of these episodes in the show notes, or you can find them on www.nordicfoodtech.io. Hey, Jacqueline, welcome to the Nordic Food Tech Podcast. Thank you, Annalisa. Glad to be here. I'm so glad to have you here. And you work for Ika, which is one of the biggest supermarkets in Sweden. So can you tell us when and how Ika got started, if we go back to the origins of the company? Yeah, sure. And to go back to the origins, we have to go back a yeah, hundred years when the Swedish society looked completely different. And uh, Håkon Svensson had the idea of uh, joining different individual store owners and bringing efficiency across uh, across the grocery stores. So we started about 100 years ago as a central purchasing order that has since then both helped shape the Swedish society and built on with more uh, more services, everything from, uh, of course, distribution and uh, and the communication, but also today is a conglomerate of everything from a bank to real estate to pharmacy. And we have uh, over 1,200 stores in our network as well. 
And as you just mentioned back then, Sweden looked a lot differently. So what was the structure where it would make sense to put together a centralized system? The core is that it was singular, singularly operating stores all over Sweden, which uh, from many perspectives weren't uh, efficient. So Ica was launched in order to help the store owners. And even today we are, we do have our, each store owns themselves and they owns Ica. So we still have that core structure, which is one of our biggest things. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about that structure because it's kind of unique in terms of how the stores are set up, what goes into the stores. So what is the structure today compared to when it started and you really brought this network of store owners together? What we've kept is um, the stores that are completely owned by their store owners. It's quite a long process to become an IKEA store, so it's not a regular franchise. And each store has the right to choose which everything from assortment to uh, value options offering that they give to their consumers so it's still a very localized uh, uh, company but where we help out uh, centrally with recommendations around assortment purchasing distribution and many other things Mm -hmm. and you talk about how Ica has helped to shape the everyday life of Swedes how has it done that in its history I think there's many different ways. We've taken a very active part in everything from local engagement. We have uh, both our store owners and centrally, we have uh, engaged in many different activities on the local markets and everything from uh, health and uh, sports to uh, forming how we both eat and consume. I think we have around 12 million consumer passing through our store network on a weekly basis. We are really a part of the everyday life of the Swedish consumer in a way that's quite um, quite unique. So we're uh, it's an important role that we play. Mm. And I want to go then a little bit back to your origin story and how you got into food. So did you know you wanted to work at Ica growing up or how did you come to that? No, it's actually funny because when I speak to pretty much anyone here in Sweden, Ica is one of Sweden's largest or most well-known brands. Uh, for non-Swedes, I usually compare it to Ikea or, or likewise. But even so, many people don't know much about the organization behind Ica. They might know their local owner and as an active player that they are in their local community. But I, I didn't think that I would work at Ica growing up, yet I'd been to the store for, for decades. Um, but I started as a consultant in London after having been at business school for a few years in London. And that's where I really got my attention to what was being changed in the food scene. So I noticed in London there were tons of new products and challenger brands, as they call it, from the UK markets. And um in at university and at the library, I was really known as the food geek. That if you came to me to Jacqueline, you would always have a buffet of, <laughs> of different weird and innovative uh, snacks. So, um, I with that some knowledge and experience, when I then came moved back to Sweden after five years in London, I noticed that when I went to my local store, there hadn't been too many changes in terms of the assortment and the kind of products that I saw in UK, plant-based to say the least. So I got really curious to understand why haven't this change been happening in 
Sweden. And then I looked at ICA and uh, wanted to join as the major player in Sweden to understand how can I help shift uh, shift and understand the market um, dynamics here. And coming to ICA, I then noticed that this is a, a wonderful organization with many entrepreneurial initiatives and ambitious, both climate and health initiatives which has made me stay now. I'm doing, going on my fifth year at IKEA. And uh, when IKEA VIXA was launched last year, I reached out to say that I thought this was a, a very important initiative that we, we need. And I was offered the role to sort of head it going forward. And I'm a little bit more than one year in now. Mm. And we are going to dive a lot more into how IKEA sources innovation, works with startups and thinks about the future of the food system. But I want to rewind and just ask, what made you a food geek or a new food product geek? How did you even get into that? I've always been interested in health and food. It's been a very integrated part of my life. And I think I've always liked the experimental side. Not many people know it, but I've done experiments on my free time with going to India for six weeks and going on a strict Ayurveda diet. I've been to Germany and done a three-week fasting where you don't eat for three weeks. I've done the, um, been a vegan for, for um, several years as a part of that, both health and value-oriented journey. And I see that food is such an important tool. It's something that we eat three times a day at least, probably more, to be honest, for, for those who can. And that's sort of bridging those different areas together is what got me interested in food. And so I started out becoming a vegan gradually during my time in London. And as I moved back to Sweden, I stopped being a vegan gradually. And today I, I, I don't eat a plant-based diet. I eat everything, but I'm more passionate than ever in the terms of like, how can we create a, a sustainable um, infrastructure and, and way of living? Wow. I mean, just like we could do a whole episode on becoming <laughs> a vegan and then going back and what you learn about your body when you try different experiments, which I've also done. So we can come back to that at some point, but um. I want to talk too about this idea of optionality that when you lived in London, obviously London is much bigger than Stockholm or <laughs> I guess even all of Sweden, but what did you find in terms of the differences in the food ecosystem there or the choices in products compared to what you saw in the supermarkets when you came back home? What I saw in London, for a lot of it was around the plant-based scene that all of a sudden if you take the snacks department, there were things around uh, coconut chips instead of potato chips. Um, you had uh, some companies trying to optimize the different uh, raw materials. So, for example, one company that was launching a watermelon juice was also launching a snack from the watermelon seed in order to be able to maximize the usage of the fruit or legume. And, and finally, when it came to food solutions, there were always available plant-based and healthy uh, alternatives in central London. And of course, if you bring in other social aspects in terms of price, et cetera, it might change what you can, what alternatives are available to you. But what I saw in London was a completely different uh, market in the terms of number of small act actors and then also hubs around it. So I always give them at least my shout out, which is Young Foodie in London, that I think have built an amazing platform and sort of hub around the challenger brands scene. And there's also retailers that have sort of been able to support and build on that role as well. 
And uh, one of the retailers that's been around, for me, it's just almost like the Oatly story, but from a retailer perspective, is uh, Planet Organic in UK that's been around for many decades, but only in the more recent years been able to grow into several stores where their entire assortment has been innovative and sort of challenging brands. So there's tons of that that we're now over the past few years starting to see uh, changing in Sweden and in the Nordic markets. But when I moved back, around five years ago it wasn't it wasn't the same focus on it as it is now what is a challenger brand so challenger brand i'm sure there's a more official definition to it than i'm about to describe but it's smaller brands that are um, coming as a niche product in different some segments so not coming from the big fmcg companies that we know of but uh, as a startup in any field is then a a challenger brand. Yeah. And it's interesting to me that even five years ago, you came back and thought that Sweden was a bit behind or there weren't more alternatives than you might've expected having moved abroad. Because of course I, I was living in Copenhagen, but I was doing quite a bit of work in Stockholm. And I was kind of surprised at how many more vegetarian and vegan options there were particularly like every restaurant, it felt like there was something on the menu and then there were full chains that were devoted to it. But also there was a much bigger uh, culture around fast casual, in my opinion. So we would do a lot more going out to eat. Whereas in Denmark, you often have a canteen where the food is served there. Um, So for me, at least in restaurants, it was noticeably different, but I'll admit I did not go shopping in grocery stores and try to pick up products and cook at home. Um, but I first had halloumi in Sweden, mm-hmm. and it took a while before we started really seeing that in Denmark. So I always felt like they were a little bit more on the the forefront. But I think that's an important take that this this were my personal experiences as I've joined Ikea and been aware of a lot of the work that has been happening over several decades, way before Ikea Mixa, is that there are a, a landscape of amazingly passionate entrepreneurs all over Sweden, and I. Uh, that includes our store owners that are really uh, for, for decades have been supporting the local entrepreneurs and the food entrepreneurs and really passionate about strengthening the, the scene here in Sweden. So um, that's my what I described as my journey. How did I end up in the scene and what's my mindset? Having said that, I've learned so much during these years that sort of uh, builds on the dynamics, which is exactly what I want, wanted and hoped to gain in this role. Mm. And I know you started in corporate strategy when you first got into Ica, and now you've moved into this kind of innovation division that we're going to talk about. So even in that time, how have you seen it shift? You were just talking about that you've seen different movements and different things going on, but what's changed when it comes to food tech, ag tech, new food products since you started five years ago? Definitely. When I started, I started almost as an internal uh, strategy consultant at Ica, and the focus was really on cross-functional uh, projects like, across all of our organization, which for me was a great way to get to know Ica as a, as a company. And then I moved into our corporate strategy role with a reorganization that we did and sort of a, some more uh, our, our strategy plans, both long-term and, and more operational. Um, so I'd say that my even though I was spending my my evenings and my weekends getting to know the food tech scene internationally, my day-to-day job at IKEA was still relatively focused on, not on food tech. Uh, when IKEA Vixa launched one year ago, 
that was a result from a report that Ikea works with and that we've launched ever since we turned 100 years. We've launched one report every year called the Future Report, where we look into different topics and how Ikea best can support being a part of the Swedish society and really shaping the society going 100 years onwards. And Ikea was launched 2020 when we had the report focusing on sustainability and what are the different elements we need in terms of uh, we need in order to create a sustainable food system. So it wasn't launched from a, a food tech point of view necessarily. It was launched from more of a sustainability point of view and to make sure that we as an organization can really start working and coordinate our work uh, in order to shape a sustainable food system. Then to go over to the food tech scene and what has changed, I would say that I noticed that over the past few years in Sweden in general, there's a much bigger um, focus on food tech. And I think when I moved home, Sweden food tech, for example, had just started, started up uh, slash was perhaps not even here the first year I moved back. And if you take that to where they are today and several different actors, we're really sort of caught up in the sense that this is something that we we need to prioritize and that the government has set aside finances in, in order to be able to accelerate, et cetera. So there's, there's a lot that has changed during the time uh, since I moved back. Yeah. And just a plug that if you're curious to learn about Sweden Food Tech, there is a podcast with Johan who started that where we talk about what they do as an organization. But I think this is a great opportunity to introduce Ikavexa. So can you tell us what that is and also maybe a little bit about the name and why that's a little bit of a play on words? Uh, yes, absolutely. So to start up with the play, so Ika Vexa, um, in Swedish, Vexa means grow, but Vext is also the word for plant in Sweden. So um, it's a playoff in the sense that we want to grow, uh, help grow initiatives in Sweden and with a focus on plant-based alternatives. And as I mentioned, the background from Ikevixa came from the, the future reports where we gathered the latest the science and research that's within the topic of sustainable food system. Will you, will you share some of the findings too in terms of um, what you saw that then led to the, the starting of it or kind of prompted it? Absolutely. So this was before I joined Ikevixa, uh, but um, the, some of the key findings is that, first of all, there's different things that we need to work with as an industry to become more sustainable. And it's both in terms of strengthening the collaboration between different actors that traditionally we worked quite um, with a competition focus. But as an industry, we need to start collaborating and sort of uh, across boundaries. And uh, we also need to have a focus on solution rather than um, problems. We are facing a climate change and health challenges that requires us coming up with solution within a reasonable time frame. So we need to focus on what can be done in order to change it. And then in terms of what areas are important, and which is really then the background between WIXA, the three key areas for sustainable food system is biodiversity, plant-based food, and also local food. And from Ikea's point of view, it's primarily the two latter that we have the possibility to really affect. The primary production we still are in, in uh, close collaborations with, but it's outside of our core operation. Our core operation as a retailer, we're able to affect the plant-based and the local assortments. And from that point of view, Ikea Vexa was launched. 
so that we can help uh, work with these topics in a more coordinated uh, way. So then what are the operations in terms of how you work with that practically, you know, on the ground in the day to day? Yes. So how we then work with it within Ikea is we have three main areas that we uh, focus on. One is open innovation. So collaboration and open innovation, where we focus really on the startup scene and also research. And we as a retailer share our knowledge from what do we see from consumer point of view, what do we need, um, as well as give feedback on products, etc. So it's more of a um, almost coaching type of a role. And for us, it's an opportunity to take part and build on our knowledge of what is happening within the ecosystem. And the other area is scale up. So that's really looking at how can we help scale companies in Sweden. And uh, that can be product innovation, but can also be technology innovation and primary production for that sense. One key part in order to have a strong plant-based food system in Sweden will be to, to start with primary production and make sure that we have the crops that we need. And the final area we work with is we call it the Swedish and local food system. And that sort of goes through everything we work with, but it means it covers, again, everything from primary production to making sure that there's strong networks between our store owners and the startup scene. And within all these fields, I would say that ICA as an organization, including our store owners, have worked for a long time, but ICA Vixa is a, a possibility to accelerate it and to sort of get that umbrella, uh, umbrella around it. And so one one last part that's not really our one of our designated areas, but that comes with being a road manager responsible for it, is coordination and communication and awareness and and, and roadmaps. So more of that sort of traditional project management focus as well. Do you mean roadmaps within each of the categories you'd see in the supermarket, or just across the whole organization? They need you know the innovation roadmap of where we're trying to go and how they're contributing to a sustainable food system both <laughs> it's uh, how do we if we have the shift how can we make sure that we do we use the resources from the most efficient way and if we have a goal that we by a uh, number of years have seen a, a shift in it within the plant-based scene how do we make sure that the activities we do today can can lead to that so it's a roadmap from uh from both perspectives, both from a category perspective, but also from some innovation, communication, et cetera, around the category. Hmm. And do you feel like there's momentum or excitement around this vision that people want to collaborate and work on it, both internally and externally? Or is it Absolutely. you know, like people don't really know what you're saying? <laughs> no, no, the opposite. Listening when I listen to this podcast, I'll feel like I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> but coming to Ika Isonvixa, this is one of the things I'm most most proud and, and passionate about. And what ultimately led that I'm having the position that I have today is that both internally and externally, almost on a daily basis, I get emails from people saying how um, how inspired they are by Ikevixa and how they want to contribute in different ways. So one way that I see this role is, of course, the formal projects that we do, but almost as much as the formal product projects do I have informal uh, matchmaking within the scene and knowledge sharing, etc., and again, the reason why I'm now uh, leading Ikevexa is because I originally 
contacted uh, my colleagues, uh, Maria and Anne-Catherine and, and Sarah, who was a part of bringing Mixa uh, or shaping Mixa. And I was, I contacted them to say what a wonderful initiative. And then my profile uh, matched to, to sort of lead it. And so I would love to dive a little bit more into the activities and what realizing this vision means, starting with what is primary production? You mentioned that a couple of times, but what does that mean? And farming. Sometimes we, we end up having a lingo that's not perhaps used as otherwise, but primary production with that, I mean farming and making sure that on our farms across East Sweden, we have a um, we have today. I'm also been working with the Farmers Association in Sweden and, and sort of pinpoint what quite some topics do we have that we can collaborate going forward. And we are speaking from our little category managers' point of view. They're often contacted in terms of what crop should we be farming at the moment within the plant-based scene, and it's difficult to answer because we don't know yet where the product will end up. We're still learning as we're going about product innovation and uh, how, how to use different crops, etc. That's really interesting that the supermarket has a direct line to the farmers and that they're actually asking, you know, what are the end consumers wanting rather than I would think the food producers. Mm. Um, how does that link to what you're thinking about when it comes to biodiversity or what we're planting in the future and that link between growing our food and actually when we end up eating and buying in supermarkets or wherever we may get our groceries? So I'd say where we are now, it's a lot of focus on knowledge sharing. As I mentioned, we have traditionally worked relatively um the collaboration we're seeing now across boundaries is rel- relatively new or can at least be ex- accentuated and strengthened. So right now we're working a lot with knowledge sharing and to take some concrete examples, what we see, for example, is we've been seeing a trend towards more traditional Swedish crops that we haven't been uh, growing in a long time. And, and that's something that we've thought is a very good from a sustainability point of view. But then speaking to farmers, we also learned that there are other aspects to it that we wouldn't necessarily have thought of, such as the more common crops today, such as oats, etc., have for the past decades been, um, I don't know the word for it in English, but fedadlade in Swedish, they've been optimized from um, a harvest point of view and how we farm them. So that if you compare them to a more traditional crop, that we haven't been eating for the past few decades, the, the other crops are now uh, lacking behind in the terms of what how the sea is optimized to be cropped with. They're not able to be cropped with, with modern technology. The, the way their seed is, is grown was optimized for when we were standing in the farms with a mire, which I'm not sure how to say in English either. But so, so to come back to like, what, how would it affect us? It helps us knowledge sharing, both from our side in the sense of what are we able to farm in Sweden? What makes sense from the farmer's perspective in terms of efficiency and also financially? And that then has a direct effect on what we think about products and how to bring about innovation. It's interesting because I'm I'm hearing a lot of talk, of course, about biodiversity. I just did a podcast with two Norwegian farmers who are regenerative farmers, so focused on regenerative agriculture. And of course, there's a link to what you buy in the supermarket and what gets planted in the crowd, what gets planted in the ground and the soil health. And I think one of the coolest startup examples I've stumbled upon actually comes from the U.S., 
but they're developing plant-based um, ice creams that are made from oat and hemp. And when you plant those together, it helps to regenerate the soil. Mm. So when you talk about voting with your dollar and what you can manage to um, buy in terms of products and what difference that makes, of course, you can go for grass-fed beef and other ones that support regenerative practices. But then there's also this idea of you know other foods that we eat that might be more processed and what are the inputs going into that? And then how does that support the agriculture underneath it? Mm. So I, I am also starting to see this connection between end product and the very beginning of the uh, the value chain. Exactly. And I'm so glad that you bring that up because that's one of the main things we've launched now with Ikevexa is our own assortment line called Swedish plant-based or Sandsvexbaserat. And that is to, in order to be able to, to help really from primary production to uh, some consumer products. But we started now with more how do you say it, like raw materials or raw varor in the sense that uh, currently in the product range we launched during 2021, it's a more focus on Swedish lentils, Swedish yin-yangs, um, three Swedish versions of hummus with, for example, gruach uh, and, and gulach and, and um, other crops. And what we want to use that assortment going forward is both help build the, the Swedish uh, plant-based uh, production and then develop consumer products that we can really, you as a consumer can go into the store and find a Swedish assort, a Swedish plant-based assortment and know that you are buying products helping, uh, helping the shift to a more plant-based diet in Sweden. Mm. You just mentioned two things that we didn't translate, which is grotla. I'm not even, I'm sure I'm not saying that right. Um, <laughs> but two things, and I'm, I'm not even sure what they mean, to be honest with you. So first, I think what you're saying is gruata, which in English is gray pea. I should have been able to do that direct translation myself. Oh, a gray pea. Yes, instead of green, for example. And then I think the other thing I said was roavarur. It comes up as raw material, but like raw product, it's really the core crop. So if you take uh, hummus, for example, the raw material would be chickpea, but the product could then be mm-hmm. hummus. And at the moment, we have focused more on uh, the chickpea, or in this case, Swedish red lentils or Swedish yang beans. Um, but over time, we want to help to shift towards more products from behind it also. And what did you say the name was of the, is it the private label or the white label or yeah. what is the... So this is a private label assortment line called Swedish uh, plant-based or Svenskvextbaserat. And uh, we see it really as one of the tools we have. Of course, we can help the, the uh, startup scene and other actors and established actors in sharing knowledge to more plant-based but we also own our own private label and that production line. So we have more room to experiment and learn and, and affect the Swedish. Uh, we can affect more with it. So we launched the Swedish assortment line within our own private label to be able to really directly get products out in stores. And you had a private label before. It's not that this is just starting now. It's that you've added this, we could call it a category, I guess, underneath it. Yeah, we... we um, We've had our private label for, for many years. This is an assortment line, we call it, because it goes cross categories. So uh, it's, mm. uh, it's a range of products within the same theme, Swedish plant-based. So in Swedish, if you go into our Ica stores, you can find it called Sam's Vexbaserat. And uh, the reason why we chose to have this, uh, apart from what I mentioned, the background with Ica Vexa, 
is that we worked for a very long time as a company and our store owners and our category managers with increasing the percentage of the Swedish raw material behind our our food. So in more traditional categories, we have a real we have a high level of Swedish um, produce and companies in our stores. But when it comes to plant based, we've we only have around 10% that's Swedish, whereas 90% is imported. So as we're wanting to make a shift towards more plant-based uh, diet, we also want to help shift the Swedish production and food system to reflect that shift. Hence, uh, the connection. What, what I love about this is the connection of so looking at a long-term sort of uh, systems approach and then being able to translate that to like, okay, what am I going to buy for dinner? I can go in and buy the Swedish plant-based red lentils instead of buying red lentils imported from uh, other parts of the world. Yeah. So you have this assortment line that you're working with and starting, then you also work with startups. So what does that collaboration look like? How do you support um, others who are developing new food products? It's a good question. Um, we've been working with this in, in different ways from Ikevix's point of view where we've met, we spent the first year of meeting perhaps uh, and almost all of them, the actors in, in Sweden and uh, been trying to both share knowledge and uh, have some meeting greets with how you can do business uh, with Ika and, and enter. And for some startups, that would mean going to the more traditional, traditional way of uh, approaching our category managers. But for some startups that are just starting up and barely have a product, We've been able to coach more in the sense of start working locally and make sure that you test your product and develop it before you try to go to a central listing because you have more criteria in the central listing. And sometimes we see that when early startups do a central listing, there's still not enough buzz or, or purchase around it. And going back to like the structure of IKEA, all of our stores have their own right to choose their assortment. And that's a positive in the sense they can really collaborate with different local store owners. Um, it also means that if you go for a central listing, that doesn't mean that you automatically appear in our in some 12, 1300 stores. You still have to work your way uh, through them. So there's really many positives of making sure that your product is ready for scale up when you go for, for it. So uh, the way we work with startups is that we both coach and uh, uh, knowledge share. We also look at um, some possibilities for collaboration, both within our private assortment or co-branding, etc. where um, Korea is, uh, I think, an exciting way of how we worked, but also collaborated with a startup and they we've been following them for a long time and what we did now during this year is that we did a collaboration between our Swedish plant-based and Mikorena's uh, some chicken nuggets which they did a, a batch production of a number of units that we then tested in a handful of stores and included a QR code on the package so that Mikorena and uh, we would get direct feedback from the consumers. Uh, having seen that and having incorporated the feedback, we're now launching it centrally via our category manager within the frozen range as a collaborated or co-branded product. Going into those two pathways a little deeper, how has innovation worked within the category managers when it comes to how new things get in or what they decide the assortment should be? So there's been some different ways of working with it, but I'd say 
innovation is something that Ike has worked with for a long time. And way, like I mentioned way before, his VEXA was launched as an initiative. So category managers have been able with a small and, and small case of numbers been able to help innovation such as uh, Seville uh, is one example where we've uh, our category managers helped bring on bring out an innovation within the uh, herring in Swedish to have a plant-based version of that and that sort of happened then in, co- in collaboration with startups within different categories and we've seen they have then seen can we do this within our private label or with a can help startups uh, launch Many of the examples that we see on the Swedish market, Ike has always usually had like a finger in the game, but we don't always market it that way. And I'd also like to highlight another way of innovation that's been taking place, and that's within via our store owners. So, like I mentioned, many enthusiastic entrepreneurs that are really passionate for their local market have for decades been helping local entrepreneurs bring their product and innovation to market. Mm. So you kind of have two ways of pitching. You can go to the category managers and pitch them, or you can go to your local store owner and say, hey, I think I should be on your shelf. Um, And will you try testing me out? Exactly. And then there's the private label path where we have an opportunity and we see several entrepreneurs that need help in reaching volumes. You can do co-brands or... um, or even white label in order to get up to volume. So yes, there's different paths into it. And uh, and that's what I mean that, yes, IKEVEX has been as an initiative for, for one year, but the topics and the way that we've been working have stretched longer. And the role that I see that we're doing is building a, a platform and sort of a synchronized interface for these topics. Yeah, connecting the dots. And when you talk about that many startups come and that they're not necessarily ready to scale up, or they might get in the centralized system, but then they have to go to the different local store owners. What does it mean to be ready to scale up? Yeah, I'd say a lot comes to uh, making sure that your product is actually something that consumers are are asking for or wanting. So again, testing becomes a, a great starting point. Is there any way that you can early on test and start doing adjustments to your um, to your product? Yeah, I did an interview with Co-op, which is a big supermarket in Denmark, and I spoke with Co-op Crowdfunding. So they also were really interested in helping startups because often they come and they say, hey, we want to get on the shelves, but they're too early. And Mm -hmm. there wasn't necessarily a place to send them or a place to help them on their journey to really get ready for what it means to be in a store. And so their answer was they're a cooperative owned by different members, but what would happen if you could, instead of using Kickstarter, use their platform and then the members can say, we want this in the store. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, you move from there. And then they had a different thing where you go and you, um, you can get help when it really comes to getting on the shelves. And he said, mm. that's really where the hard work starts. Mm. You know, it's one thing is get, it's like making a pitch to investor. One thing is getting on the shelf, but then you have to keep that space and fight for it. Yeah. And you have to be ready with your quality and your production and your marketing. And exactly. you know, like, there's so much that goes into it. Exactly. Um, the other parallel I think is really interesting is that I interviewed them a couple years ago, but even at that point, it was already, uh, they already had studies saying that the thing that influences what supermarket people decide in Denmark is largely based on whether or not they can buy local products. And it's really interesting that in Sweden, there's a similar push to saying, how do we get more Swedish? How do we get more local? Um, but also just, you know, these new products, new, exciting things. How mm. do you make that more regionally focused? 
Absolutely. And there's several parts of the shift towards more Swedish. It's uh, several aspects into it. But but one of them and what we see then in the future for 2021, where we took a more consumer focus. If 2020 we had a focus from a sustainability point of view, uh, what does a sustainable food system look like? In 2021, we had more of a focus. What have we learned the first year? And also did a deep dive in consumer um, consumer some demands and uh, and wants and Swedish and locally produced food is is one of the main asks um, together with plant based. So uh, there's several drivers to it, both from a systems approach and making sure that we have a viable infrastructure, but then also from a consumer demand. Uh, you want to be able to sort of close the gap from where is this food on my plate coming from and uh, um, strengthening the relationship with food. And before we move into the last couple of questions, everybody gets asked. Um, I do want to just graze upon one thing, which is that it's unique that in, I don't know if this is just true for Ica or for the whole Swedish retailer ecosystem, but there's two times a year when you mainly bring in new products. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that process and what it looks like and what it means and how it works um, when it comes to being able to pitch you guys? First of all, it's not the same for, for all of IKEA, for all of Sweden, I mean. It is the same for all of IKEA. Uh, but different retailers have different approaches where some I know you can pitch uh, at all times during the year. You send in and they'll handle each one uh, individually. Where in IKEA, we have these two windows. And that's really for a more an efficiency and fairness point of view to be able to, uh, we have a, a limited a space and assortment to be able to compare companies with each other. And just to add, um, I had another podcast with Gustav, who has vegan or Sweden's biggest vegan food blog called Gut. And I was really interested to learn that part of what he does in his food blogging work is actually help startups around this time of year when they get on the shelves and are introduced. Because many times when you see a new food product, you don't always know what to do with it. How do you cook with it? And if you see the, um, if you find recipes or you see talk about it, it can really help a lot. So he actually collaborates a lot with different startups, um, helping them when it comes to getting in the store and what it looks like that time of year. Yes. And I think that's a really important part of it is uh, one part is getting the right products out there, but the next is how do you actually cook it and make it a part of your everyday life where I think Gustav amongst others are excellent point of view and some examples of how to help consumers and from Ikea's perspective we have our own some recipe websites Ikea.se which is Sweden's largest recipe website where we work a lot with if you want to reduce your climate impact you can exchange this ingredient to this ingredient and you can see the decrease in your CO2 uh, impact etc and uh, also as a part with the plant-based they have a range of um, both our Swedish plant-based assortment to have examples of different things you can cook with it, but also other plant-based products, of course, um, and, and weekly menus, weekly plant-based menus, et cetera. So definitely recipes and influencing and inspiring around food is such an important part of it so that we actually uh, want and are able to incorporate it in our de- everyday life. That's really cool with the recipe website. I didn't know that. Um can you also see stuff like which farm it came from or where it was sourced from when it comes to the determination of the climate impact or where you decide to buy all that stuff? 
Um, at the moment, there's a lot of startups working with blockchain in the food system to be able to track from farms. We're not there yet. Uh, what we uh, what we are working with is some the climate databases around the the impact from different types of products, and that's where it's calculated from. And we also have our our function called the Mit Klimat Mål My Climate Goal, where if you log into your IKEA account, you can see how much climate impact your food and your grocery your grocery basket has. And you can also see how you can reduce it and you can track it over time. And as a company, we have our goal to half the climate impact from our customers' grocery baskets by 2030. And all of these tools are adding up, including Ikevix, our different tools to make that shift happen. There's a, a lot to it. And again, coming back to me joining IKEA several years ago, I was really amazed by all the work and different functions that exist and that not everyone always knows about if you're coming from the outside perspectives. But there's so many tools in order to help how you help both from a health and climate perspective. And when it comes to how IKEA measures the impact of all of this, how are you looking at that or thinking about that? So there's different ways. One example is, as I mentioned before, we want to have the climate impact from our food customers' food baskets. And that's adding to the fact that we already reached our sustainability goals of being coming uh, neutral, etc. Another initiative that we have is from a health point of view that we want to make sure that the Swedish, the average Swede is eating 500 grams of fruit and vegetable every day. And we measure that impact directly from how much do we how much do we sell? And today we're around 300 to 400 grams of fruit and vegetables per uh, the average sweet when the dietary uh, recommendation is 500. But then there's other ways that you can work with the same topic. So those are more KPIs coming from us centrally in terms of the work that we do. But what I love about IKEA and the way that our company is set up is that you always uh, have initiative coming locally from our store owners. And it's, again, coming to the fact that there are their own passionate entrepreneurs. So we have uh, one store owner who's uh, coming from, if we take an example from the health point of view, who's um, categorized entire store from, from green, yellow, red, and black in terms of how much sugar does the product uh, consist or have and wants to be able to market that towards consumers. So what I think is really cool is regardless of the topic, we've often already seen examples on local markets via our store owners, and we're able to then incorporate that and build on that. So there's this natural um, natural structure for open collaboration and experiments that I think is really exciting. Yeah, and I know there's oftentimes dietitians employed in different companies, but also that more and more big companies are looking at how do we actually put together recipes that take into account health and sustainability and make sure that those are both accounted for in different ways, which is really interesting. Absolutely. And as you mentioned, we also have our own dietitian, as you mentioned, that many co companies do, even though the end consumer don't always know it. But we also have our dietitian, Paula, who's uh, very engaged and, and passionate about it. And uh, and we work with her closely, especially now when we bring to market new products uh, to make sure that it has the, the right dietary uh, consistency, et cetera. Mm, that's so interesting. So what would you say your vision for the future of food is in 10 to 15 years? So in 10 to 15 years, I hope that we've been able to scale a lot of the innovation that we're seeing today 
personally, I think that we as a food industry are sort of seeing the shift that the technology industry was seeing around the um, millennial shifts. And I think that we're really working in ways that we can. Um, we're seeing a lot of capital going into innovation at the moment, which I think is exciting. We have the possibility to make this next decade about first experimenting and tweaking and then really scaling um, innovation. And, and on top of that, my vision for us as an industry and how we work is that we really started shifting and, and working and having established ways of working across the entire value chain. So bringing from the farmers to our dining table and back, like you mentioned, everything from blockchain and able to, to track it. And I think, and the opposite, even with personalized diets, et cetera, so that we're able to really eat in a more sustainable and healthy way. And I think there are several, the knowledge now is out there via, for example, Eat Lancet, et cetera. Now it's about building the infrastructure and that it really reflects it from primary production to the to our dinner plates. And what do you think we're missing to get there? Um, so as optimistic I am, I'm also, so how do you say, I also see several things missing at the moment. Um, and there's a lot of things you could go into it. We recently, or last, even in the beginning of the year, had a workshop around capital missing. Now we're seeing that shift and that the 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 amount of money going into innovation within food have increased significantly over the last few years. However, there are other parts that still needs that sort of a, a dramatic shift. And that can be everything from regulatory framework where we're seeing that um, Europe and Scandinavia have more traditional or risk-averse regulatory frameworks in order to sustain a healthy level of the food that comes in. And there's so many pros in that. And we've built a system to make sure that we have healthy food. Um, but, but as we're seeing the innovation change and sort of the lines blur out between food and life science, et cetera, we're also needing, there's a need for regulatory frameworks to be be able to welcome that innovation as well but I think what I'm excited about and what I'm thankful for the role of EXA is being able to meet all those entrepreneurs both uh, in Sweden and globally and uh, also colleagues that are so passionate and driven about driving a change that again bringing me back to the optimist I am optimistic that we will be able to change it just as we look to the IT what did that look like in the 90s versus what are we living and how are we living our lives today so I think it's a it's an exciting journey ahead for the food tech uh, scene mm, yeah it's exciting I'm excited to see what happens too um the other thing I always ask is what collaborations you're looking for, or it could really be anything that you're trying to source right now, but we have listeners from all over who know all kinds of things. So you never know what's going to boomerang back to you, but what is it that you're looking for right now or that you need help with? Again, there's so, there's so much, but what we're like primarily focusing on are Swedish entrepreneurs ready to scale and needing help in that scale up journey so if you have a product ready it's at least in the swedish uh, produce whether that's an ingredient or technology innovation and wanting to scale across uh, across um, sweden and that's our primary focus uh, having said that we're also looking at different with some players as we mentioned we need to work as the entire value chain in bringing this change so whether you're a uh, some politician or a regulatory 
uh, from a regulatory body or you're from a production site with excess uh, capacity, etc. We're interested in <clears throat> continuing to, to learn about the market and see how we're, there's new ways of collaborating. And, and that, of course, ranges uh, outside of Sweden's um, uh, outside of Sweden as well. A lot going on. A lot of collaboration. <laughs> it is a lot of collaboration. And I think that's an important part that we set from the beginning with Ikevix, that we're just a number of uh, a handful of employees at the headquarters. And then we have our colleagues and our store networks. This is not a shift that one individual or two individual or 10 individual can do. This is a shift that we need to be able to do together. So um, we, we usually say that, you know, Everything can do some. Everyone can do something, but added up, it makes a big difference, and that's why I think hence the focus on collaboration. So, what's the best way for someone to reach out to you or get in touch with other parts of the organization, depending on how how they want to collaborate? So, I think we'll share the links with this podcast to Ikevix's website as well as the future reports, and there you have the contact details of of me and my colleagues, uh, depending on if you're a startup or if you're a scale-up or uh, any other some type of uh, uh, type of perspective. Um, and otherwise, always feel free to, to reach out on LinkedIn as well. And I'm help, happy to help try to direct the, the way going forward. All right, Jacqueline. I just want to ask if there's anything I didn't ask you about or any final words you want to part on before we sign off. What I'd like to just uh, highlight is the fact that I love what you've done with your podcast in the sense that you've brought together so many different parts of it and you really made available knowledge that wasn't available when you started out. And if you've done that from sort of the, the Nordic network scene, that's what we're trying to do now from the retail perspective. So I'd just like to uh, give a shout out to you and to everyone who's participated during the years and the these are the types of things we really need in order to, to make the shift uh, uh, more easily done. You're making me blush. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> but yeah, I agree. And it's wonderful to hear people who are open-minded to collaborating and starting to see it happening more and more. But as you said, there's a long way to go. And there's still a lot of disconnect between the fact that you can take climate action through food. And what does that mean? What does that look like? I don't think the average person I talk to who doesn't work in food really knows the answer to that. Mm. And there's more than one way. Absolutely. So that'll be stay tuned for more episodes exactly. diving into this. Topic. <laughs> exactly. um, yeah. But thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. All right. That's all for today. So what were your thoughts on this episode? I'd love to hear them. Feel free to shoot me a message on LinkedIn or Instagram or email me at nordicfoodtechpodcast at gmail.com. If you really liked it, consider becoming a patron and supporting the show for a few dollars every month. The link to do so is in the show notes or visit www.nordicfoodtech.io. Your contribution will make all the difference and enable me to tell more good stories about how we're creating a better future through food. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>